0: Text for this morning is Acts chapter four. We'll be looking at verses twenty-three through thirty-one. If you would all please stand, the reading of God's word. Acts chapter four, verses twenty-three through thirty-one. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, "Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them." Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats, and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Father, we pray that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word, give us insight from Scripture today, instruct us and how we ought to respond to times of persecution and trials in our lives. Uh, Teach us about prayer from this text, this model prayer that we have in the book of Acts. I just pray that each one of us would be changed, encouraged, and challenged today as a result of our time in your word this morning. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, today is the last of three sermons working through one long narrative section here in the book of Acts. It begins in chapter 3, so we're going to do a quick review of the last Uh, Two sermons, and then we'll pick up the story from there and finish it this morning. At the start of Acts chapter 3, we're told that Peter and John went up to the temple for the hour of prayer. Uh, Twice a day, every day at the temple, Jews would gather there to pray uh, while the incense was being offered to God. And during this time, when they got there, they saw a lame man, a man who had never been able to walk. He was over 40 years of age, lame from birth. He was laying there on the ground begging for money. Uh, The text tells us that he came there every day. People would drop him off. They'd pick him up, carry him to the temple, drop him off there, and he would spend the day begging. Uh, The Jews living here in Jerusalem, they knew him. They all walked by him day after day as they made their way up to the temple. He was always there, laying on the ground, calling out for alms. This particular day, Peter walks up to him and he says, In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And immediately, this man who had never stood or walked before leaps up to his feet, and he begins walking and jumping and praising God. And of course, the people at the temple are all amazed. They know him. They know that he's never been able to walk before, and now he's completely healed. And so they begin to crowd around Peter. And Peter takes the opportunity to preach the gospel to them. He calls them to repent of their sin, to turn to Christ for salvation. And right in the middle of Peter and John, they're they're preaching the gospel to these crowds of people, the authorities, the religious leaders, the temple security come over and they arrest Peter and John. They put them in jail. The next day, they stand trial before the Jewish authorities, the very same group of uh, rulers who had put Jesus to death just a couple of months prior, and they have to answer for what they've done. Uh, Peter tells them that it was through the name of Jesus that this man was healed, He tells them that Jesus has been raised back to life, the one that they had condemned to death. God has raised him again. And he tells them that salvation from their sins is only found through his name. And so again, these are the same religious leaders, the ones who had killed Jesus just a few weeks prior, and they are not particularly pleased that his followers are continuing to talk about him and claiming that he's alive from the dead. And so they instruct Peter and John, and they tell them they're, they're free to go as long as they stop preaching about Jesus. And the text says that they threatened them. Luke doesn't tell us exactly what those threats were, uh, but no doubt these guys were to be taken seriously. And so Peter and John <clears throat> leave their trial. They head, in verse 23, to the group of Christians that were gathered. It says, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. So this, again, appears to be a group of the church in Jerusalem, uh, maybe meeting in somebody's house. And they reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them, namely, stop teaching in the name of Jesus or else. And so they went to this group of Christians with this news that they've been ordered to stop. Verse 24 says, when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God. So this was the initial response of the church. To this threat of persecution, they prayed. Together, they lifted up their voices to God. And verses 24 to 30 records their prayer. Uh, basically, as we'll see as we go through it, the prayer simply says, God, we know you're, you're in control of everything. We ask that you would give us boldness to continue preaching the gospel, even with these threats from the authorities. That's the gist of the prayer. But we're going to walk through it slowly because there's a lot of theological richness in these words. Notice in verse 24, they say, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Uh, The first word of the prayer is despota. Uh, Normally the Greek word for Lord is kurios. This is a different word that emphasizes the sovereignty of God, the control of God. You are sovereign, which means you have you have ultimate authority and power. Think of a king who can command anything that he wants in his realm. He has absolute sovereignty, absolute authority to govern the affairs of his country. God has that kind of authority and sovereignty over all of the universe. Sovereign Lord who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything that is in all of those. You made all of it, and that means you're more powerful than all of it. You have authority over all of it. You're sovereign over all of it. God is sovereign over all of his creation, including these religious leaders who are opposing them. Verse twenty-five. The prayer continues. Who, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, "Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain?" By the way, just as a side note, that's a great summary of the doctrine of inspiration. Uh, They're about to quote from Psalm two, and they say that God said this through the mouth of King David by the Holy Spirit. So they understand the Bible to be God's words. Uh, These human authors wrote as the Holy Spirit guided them, such that the 66 books of our Bible are the very words of God. And the text they quote there is from Psalm chapter 2. And really, in order to understand what they're doing uh, with this text, this Old Testament passage, we need to take a detour, uh, go over to Psalm 2, look at that for a minute. Beginning in verse 1, Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations rage, and the peoples plot in vain? So the nations, the peoples are plotting something. Uh, and David says they're doing this in vain. It's a waste of time. It's a useless attempt that will fail. And here, here's what they're plotting in verse 2. It says, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So these rulers, these kings, are plotting against God and against his anointed one. That's the Messiah. Messiah or Christ simply means the anointed. And so these rulers, these kings, they're plotting against God and against his Christ, speaking of Jesus. And while they are doing this, while they are conspiring against God and against his anointed one, verse 4 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Uh, this is not the only time in the Bible where it speaks of God laughing. It's mentioned a few other places, and every place that I'm aware of, it's the same sort of thing. People are opposing God. They're resisting God. They're trying to thwart God's plans in some way. And God is up there chuckling at them. Uh, They think that they can stop what he's doing. But they're plotting against God and against his anointed is in vain. They don't stand a chance of stopping God's plan. Verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. He'll terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Speaking of that anointed one, the Christ. Verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So this anointed one we see in verse 7 is the son of God. And here's the decree. What God has declared will happen. Here's the purpose and plan of God, what he has purposed that he will do. He has declared that the nations will be the heritage and possession of his son. His anointed one, his Messiah, will reign as king over all the world. And so while these rulers and kings of the earth are plotting against God and against his Messiah, the king that he's given ultimate authority to rule the nations, while they are foolishly plotting against him, God declares to Jesus, I will make the nations yours. I will give to my son the ends of the earth as his possession." We've talked about this many times, but Philippians 2 says that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. God has purposed that this will take place. God has purposed that Jesus will rule over all the world. As the gospel is preached and people repent of their sins and turn in faith to Jesus, one by one, the inhabitants of the world will submit to the lordship of Christ until one day he is reigning over all nations. This is God's decree. And all of those kings and rulers who are trying to resist God's plan, to them, he says in verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. In other words, he says, you better submit to Christ now. You kings, you rulers, don't be stupid. Uh, Don't try to resist the plan of God or you'll be crushed by him. So that's Psalm 2. It's a prophecy about the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed king, the son of God who would rule over the nations of the world. And it's also a prophecy about those who would foolishly attempt to resist God's plan, to oppose what he's doing. Rulers, kings, people in positions of power who will try to thwart God's purpose. And will oppose Jesus but all of their efforts will be in vain god laughs at their feeble attempts and in the en- in the end jesus must reign until all of his enemies are put under his feet so back to our text remember this is all a prayer to god they say to god in verse 25 that you said through the mouth of our father david your servant you said by the holy spirit why did the nations rage uh, why did the gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So you see, they're quoting directly from Psalm 2. And the early church rightly understands this text to be about Jesus. They say in verse 27, For truly in this city, in Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. These are the kings, the rulers who set themselves against Jesus. These religious leaders of Jerusalem, the Roman officials like Herod and Pontius Pilate, they all conspired together. They were complicit in the execution of Jesus. They were the ones that Psalm 2 said were foolishly plotting against God and against his anointed king. They thought that they could kill Jesus and get rid of it. They thought they'd be done with the whole deal. But look at verse 28. They gathered together against Jesus. They plotted against him to do whatever your hand And your plan had predestined to take place. Remember in Psalm 2, the nations are raging. The peoples are plotting in vain. The kings of the earth, the rulers are conspiring against the Lord and against his anointed one. Meanwhile, God is sitting in heaven laughing. He holds them in derision. They aren't affecting his plans one bit. In fact, they are unknowingly working out what he has predestined to take place even though they have no clue that they're doing it. They were trying to get rid of Jesus. They hated him. They wanted him dead. And yet by killing him on a cross, they played right into God's hand. The cross is, after all, why Jesus came. He said many times throughout his ministry that he had come to die and to save sinners. He would lay down his life as a sacrifice for sins. And so Pilate, Herod, these Jewish leaders, the Roman soldiers, all of these people, who were involved in the unjust murder of Jesus were actually doing what God had purposed. We've looked before at Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, many other texts in the Old Testament written centuries before Jesus that outline in detail the crucifixion, that Jesus would die on a cross bearing our sins. This was God's plan. He had predestined that it would happen and he used the enemies of Jesus to accomplish his purpose. That's sovereignty. We as humans think that we're autonomous. We think that we act freely and God has no control over our choices and our decisions, our actions. But from a biblical perspective, God is sovereign over it all. He can direct even our actions into what he has purposed to do. Herod, Pilate, the Jews, the Gentiles, uh, referring there to the Roman soldiers, all of them played a part in killing Jesus. And all of them were doing what God had decreed to take place. Here's what Herod did to Jesus in Luke 23.11. Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Now, here's what the Jews said of Jesus in Luke 23.21. They kept shouting, Crucify, crucify him. Here's what Pilate did with Jesus, verse 24. Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked but he delivered Jesus over to do their will. And then here's what the Roman soldiers did in Luke 23:36. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. They plotted against Jesus. They mocked him. They killed him. And all of it was God's plan. They thought that they were opposing Jesus and getting rid of him. But in reality, God was using their sinful actions For his purpose of saving the world from sin. Now, the question is what does any of that have to do with what's going on in Acts chapter 4? Peter and John, they come back from their trial before the authorities. They report that they've been ordered to stop preaching about Jesus. And these religious leaders have threatened them that if they violate these orders, they're going to be in trouble. And the Christians here in Acts chapter 4, they think back to Psalm 2. And the fulfillment of it that they had seen just a few weeks prior. How people were conspiring against Jesus. And it seemed terrible at the time. And yet in the end, God was working through all of it. Not just in spite of their opposition. But God was actually using their opposition to fulfill his purpose, his plan of redeeming the world from sin. And so with that understanding, these Christians then are trusting the same God who was sovereign over the actions of Herod and Pilate against Jesus. The same God who worked all of that out for good to accomplish his purpose. He's going to do the same thing now. These Jewish leaders can threaten us all they want. They can order us to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And maybe they'll imprison us. Maybe they'll kill us if we continue. But God is sovereign. Their efforts to hinder the spread of the kingdom of Jesus will not succeed. They can plot all they want. It will fail. And God can work even through these seemingly bad circumstances to accomplish his purpose. And by the way, as we go throughout the book of Acts, we're going to see that over and over again, where uh, the, the church is persecuted. The religious leaders are uh, literally killing Christians uh, for their preaching of the gospel. And what happens is that causes the church to spread. They flee from that city to the next city. And with that, they bring the gospel and they plant churches and God's kingdom. Continues to advance. God uses even the persecution of the church as the seed of the gospel. And so, with this confidence in the sovereignty of God, now they finally get to the request. The prayer so far has just been uh, reciting God's sovereignty over the affairs of men. Now they finally get to what they're asking God for. Verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So they basically say, God, they've, they've threatened us. They've warned us to stop preaching in your name. But we're not going to let any of that stop us from carrying on the mission that you gave us. To preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins to all nations of the world. And so give us boldness to continue Preaching your gospel while you continue doing these signs and wonders that are causing so many people to hear the message of Jesus' death and resurrection—they don't ask for the spotlight to come off of them. Uh, Remember that the healing of this lame man—that's what got them in trouble to begin with. It drew attention to their message, but it also resulted in thousands of people converting to Christ. And so they asked that God would continue to move among them, that He would give them the boldness to ignore the threats and keep preaching the gospel. Notice the request. They don't ask God, would you change these circumstances? Would you cause these persecutions to stop? No, they recognize that God is in control of the circumstances around them. And so rather than asking God to make everything easier for them, they ask for courage. Instead of, Lord, would you cause the Jewish leaders to have a change of heart to stop opposing our message? Instead of that, they ask God, we know that you're in heaven right now laughing at their feeble efforts to stop your kingdom from spreading. We know that you have set your king in Zion. You have given him dominion, and you will make the nations his heritage. They will be his possessions. The ends of the earth will belong to Christ. He will rule over all nations of the world. We trust in your promise to do that, and we ask that you would give us the courage in this moment to continue to speak the truth and trust in your plan. You are behind the cross And you're working now through us as well. And so no matter what threats they level at us, we know that you're working. That nobody can restrain your hand from doing what you have predestined to do. So give us boldness and courage to keep going no matter the obstacles. Verse 31 says, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. It seems to be God's way of demonstrating his approval of their mindset, of the prayer that they had offered. It's an encouragement to them that he will be with them, that he'll give them the boldness to continue to preach in the face of opposition and persecution. I want to give just three practical takeaways about this prayer, about prayer in general from this text. I think all of these have broader application to other things that we pray for as well, not just in terms of persecution. Number one, Proper praying begins by saturating your mind in Scripture. Right in the middle of this prayer for boldness, they quote from Psalm 2, and they apply it to Jesus, and they draw from how God worked in the past principles that strengthen their trust in his working right now, even if they don't see it. The question is, are we familiar enough with Scripture to do that when we pray, to preach to ourselves and remind ourselves of scriptural principles? Their understanding of Psalm 2, of God's perspective over the affairs of men, it taught them that it's vain to plot against God and to try to stop his purposes, which is exactly what these Jewish leaders are trying to do. And even when the most powerful kings and rulers of the earth try to resist the decree of God, they end up accidentally doing precisely what he wanted them to do. Because nobody can resist God accomplishing his purposes. And that truth that they knew from studying the revelation of God in Scripture informed their prayer here. So the bottom line is, if you want to pray well, you first need to learn the Bible. It is in the pages of Scripture that you learn how God works, what God is like, how he thinks, all of which shapes and informs how we pray to him. And so in order to pray rightly, one must know God accurately. The more that we know of God, the better we will know how to pray in any given situation. Proper praying begins by having a mind saturated in Scripture. Number two, proper praying understands the sovereignty of God is the foundation of our confidence. Don't forget as you pray to God that he is the one who made the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything that exists in all of that. He made it all. He designed it all. He controls it all. It all belongs to God. Every inch of the universe is his creation. Christ is building his kingdom, and no one can stop that. Human efforts to resist the work of God are all in vain. It's good to remind yourself of that. When you see in the news about lawmakers who want to make biblical Christianity illegal, they want to shut down churches, just remember, God laughs at those little humans down here plotting against his work. We need to remind ourselves that God will accomplish his purpose in the world, and no one and nothing can stop or hinder his plan. From our vantage point, things may look bleak at certain times, but things looked really bleak the night that Jesus was hanging dead on a cross. It seemed like the enemies of God had won. But God is sovereign, and that fact should give us great confidence. This, of course, has relevance to other issues beyond just persecution again. Is God sovereign over sickness? Is God sovereign over finances? Is God sovereign over other situations? Whatever it may be, the sovereignty of God over his creation should give us confidence that he is in control and whatever he allows into the life of his children is ultimately for their benefit and for his purpose. Number three, proper praying is less about God changing my circumstances and more about God changing me. Uh, most of us, if we were threatened by the authorities to stop preaching the gospel, uh, well, first of all, the question would be, are we even preaching the gospel? Uh, would, would that even be a problem? But uh, let's just say we are threatened. We're, we're threatened by the authorities. Shut down your church. Stop preaching the gospel. Most of us would pray and ask God to intervene in the situation, change their hearts or something, uh, make this opposition go away. But they never asked for that. They just said, God, take note of their threats and grant us boldness to keep preaching. They didn't ask God to change the circumstances around them. They asked God to help them to be able to handle the circumstances in a way that would be pleasing to him. Most of our prayers tend to be all about God improving our circumstances, fixing all of our problems, taking away any difficulties that we're experiencing. And maybe instead we ought to ask God to fix us, to change us, to improve us. Maybe instead of begging God to take away that trial in your life, you ought to be asking God, what are you trying to teach me through this? Maybe instead of asking God, why? Why are you allowing this to happen to me? Maybe we ought to be saying, God, would you help me to trust you more? Help my faith in you to grow even through this time? God allows hard times into our lives for reasons. Yet often we miss what God is trying to teach us during those times, the ways in which he's trying to stretch us and grow our faith. We miss it because we're so focused on just get rid of the problem. All of our prayers are asking God to change the situation. We never think to ask God to change us. Do you see how each of these points builds off of the previous one? Uh, First, you must study scripture, learn about God from his word. As a result of that, one of the things you learn from Scripture is that God is sovereign, even over difficult and seemingly uh, terrible circumstances. And so the knowledge of God's presence and his hand at work, even through the darkest of times, that leads to confidence that his plan and purpose, including for your life, will prevail in the end. And that even these apparently bad things that are happening may in fact be a part of his plan. Uh, When Joseph is sold into slavery in the book of Genesis, that seemed really bad. But if you remember how the story ends, Joseph is in Egypt, and that's the only reason he and his family survived the famine. And so even the sinful actions of Joseph's brothers in selling him as a slave was a part of God's plan. In the end of that narrative, Joseph is able to say to them, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And so saturating your mind in scripture like this leads to a better understanding and confidence in God and in his ultimate sovereignty. And all of that confidence in God, that he is in control over even the worst things in my life, that should lead to point three. If God is sovereign over everything, then the purpose of my praying shouldn't be to get God to change his plan, to get him to do something different than what he's doing. If he's allowed this trial into my life, then he has a purpose for that. So instead of begging God to get rid of it, make everything in my life easy, maybe we ought to be instead praying that God would change us and give us the proper mindset and attitude to face the things that he, in his wisdom, has ordained for our lives. In other words, prayer, I think, is less about me changing God and more about asking God to change me. God doesn't need my input. Uh, That doesn't mean necessarily that you don't ever pray about circumstances. But I think we ought to pray like these Christians did here in Acts chapter 4. God, look on their threats and please grant us boldness to keep doing what you've told us to do. God, here's the situation right now. Uh, Would you please give me what I need to endure this, to handle this in a way that would be glorifying to you? That's a radically different way of praying than what we typically do which is something like, God, please take this away, fix all the bad things in my life. This prayer in Acts chapter 4 serves as a great model for us, I think, in how to pray in a manner that is pleasing to God. God certainly heard and answered this prayer, uh, granted them boldness, as you see there, to continue preaching. And he blessed them in the days that followed. Verse 32, uh, we'll get into this next week, but it says, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. The persecution wasn't over. There would be hard times ahead. But for now, this church continued to grow and thrive. God's presence of blessing was evident in their midst. And I think the same will be true of us if we learn to pray like this. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness.